0: Good afternoon. Welcome to the uh, AIDS Seminar. I've got uh, one housekeeping or CME nursing uh, uh, requirement to do, um, so just bear with me. Um, For anyone who's uh, going to receive nursing credits, your contact hours will be posted to your online transcript within one month of this seminar. Uh, instruction sheets on, or instructions for how you access your uh, credits are on the check-in table over to the right here. Um, and one final thing, you must attend 80% of this program to receive the credit uh, and Brian Marsh uh, who is on our Planning Commission uh, planning committee uh, is a consultant for Gilead Pharmaceuticals. Uh, the, he has no conflict of interest other than that uh, for uh, making working on the planning of this, uh, this seminar and related seminars. Okay, Brian. Thanks, Richard. You're
1: welcome to the January 8th seminar. We got two speakers today, um, uh, Drs. Turco and Turco and Kelly are here who are going to be speaking, what's the title of the seminar? Oh, Transgender Transgender Issues. Transgender Issues. Yeah, Yeah. Got it, there. I knew the topic, I didn't know the official title. (laughs) Sounds great. So, transgender issues, uh, pertinent to HIV. Um, And uh, Jack, I must have seen his CV in the past, but I got to go through it again today, and Jack uh, graduated initially, undergraduate from Harvard, and then was at Columbia for medical school, uh, and then came to Dartmouth, and came here as an intern, has been here ever since. Uh, After finishing his training, uh, he was on the staff at um, at Dick's House at the College Health Clinic, and has remained on there, was the medical director for many, many, many years, I just learned that three years ago took on a co-director and has stepped down now as the director and is uh, looking for actually a little bit of free time. He says he's going cross-country skiing when we're done today. So, um, but still working over there and a professor of medicine in the section of endocrinology here, uh, known to all of us, I think, in our group and who's worked for many, many years as a, an advocate and provider Uh, for transgender population uh, in the area, including a number of our patients. Uh, As I say, Jack, I think known well to us. Uh, Arise Kelly known less well. Uh, I haven't met. Um, Been with us here uh, on the college campus now for two years. Uh, Did his training, undergraduate at Colby, and then uh, SUNY in Albany, uh, where he got his Masters and PhD. Uh, and uh, then after that was at uh, University of Vermont, I think, for a little bit, and then Middlebury, uh, where he was uh, doing some postdoctoral work, uh, and then came to Dartmouth, as I said, to the college two years ago. Uh, he's currently the interim director of the Office of Pluralism and Leadership, um, has a, a number of other responsibilities, uh, including... Uh, as co-chair of the Transgender Variant Caucus of the National Women's Studies Association. Um, throughout his academic career, uh clearly been uh, very engaged in uh, uh, gender and, in particular, transgender issues. Um, and we're excited to
2: uh, hear from him along with Jack today. So thank you both. Great. Thank you, Brian. It's great to be here. And I, I hearken back to... Uh, the 60s, uh, going to a, a concert. Let's say it's the Love and Spoonfuls, but you always have kind of a pre-band, and I, am kind of that, that first band. You play a couple of tunes because I think the most important is going to be here from Reese uh, about this intersection of HIV and trans, and I'm make sure I keep this very short. So for, one of the first questions that comes up is, you know, gender identity. You know, what is gender identity? How, how do we see ourselves? As male or female, and you've got an endocrinologist here to give you the answer. We have no clue. Uh, you know, this is something that's very difficult to, to really tease out. And I put this slide up there to just show that over the years there has been some feeling that this is either uh, very much nurture. You know, you throw the pink blanket versus the blue blanket in the crib, and the kid learns how to be a boy or a girl. Versus nature, is this more hardwired? and you know this has been discussed over the years the pendulum has swung back and forth some of you may remember john money from uh down at hopkins who really felt that this was a nurturing issue and that in the first year year and a half by three years of age an individual a baby learned to take on the identity of a male or a female and this was somewhat fluid and you could you know bring a kid up to be a female or a male i think i would say that you know, over the last 15, 20 years, for various reasons, uh, I think people are thinking this is much more hardwired, and uh, that, uh, and there's there's several examples of, of situations where uh, there must be some hardwiring to really for it to make sense. But I, I think most people would end up saying this is probably a combination of factors. But personally, I think this is much more hardwired than it is nurturing. Uh, I think it also brings up the fact that at least in our country, this is a very Uh, Binary issue. You're either male or female. And personally, the way I look at gender identity, I think it's much more of a spectrum. It's a spectrum that can sometimes be difficult and dangerous to be on if you're a a young kid or an adult. Uh, And as a result, we we really do get polarized to either side. Uh, So the question can be, can you be a little bit male and a little bit female and somewhere in between? And certainly many patients I see will tell me that. The other thing that struck me when we talk about HIV population and transgender population is I think they're both very stigmatized uh, populations in our society. So it's interesting to talk about a group of stigmatized populations, and these individuals may have both. And one thing that strikes me, not always true, but it, and I'm sure you find the same, I'd be curious if you do, is as a result, sometimes we see some of the most resilient people in the world that have had to deal with a lot of societal pressures and hurdles and so forth. So it's not surprising that when I think on that handful of transgender patients who are HIV positive that I see, they tend to be tough cookies who uh, kind of uh, you know have gone through a lot. All right, so uh, one thing that I think is also, uh, I, the most important thing I'm gonna say to, to you individuals that take care of HIV patients, it, when you see a trans patient, You know, the most important thing is to make that person welcome, because, you know, you're on trial. Any of us that see transgender patients, they come into the office looking around for signs. Are they really welcome here? Is this a trans-friendly practice? And I think the one thing that you can make doctors uncomfortable is to change that power struggle. No matter what we say as physicians, I think we all assume that we're kind of in control of the office visit, and there is a little bit of you know, we know the terminology and we have to explain it to these patients. Well, this is flipped over in this situation because you're going to be dealing with uh, situations about gender that you're going to realize you don't quite understand it. And part of it is the nomenclature. And the nomenclature, if somebody tries to stay up with it like I do, changes, what, every two or three months. So, you know, it depends if you're on the West Coast or whatever. And it can be very intimidating, I think, when you start to hear these terms and you're not quite sure what they all are. And we could spend a lot of time on this, but in general, people are thinking that there's this big umbrella, that here they're talking about it being transgender. Personally, I would probably make the umbrella gender queer, And then underneath that, there are all the different variations. And, uh, you know, there's transvestites that they put there, would be a crossdresser, you know, a 46xy male who doesn't want to become a female, but does dress up in female clothes and gets some gains from that. In different cultures, there's two-spirit in the Native American culture where individuals seem to be born with feeling a little bit feminine and a little bit masculine, and they actually are felt to be uh, even a more special part of that Native American society because the highest spirit gives you your gender, and if it gives you both, you must be something extra special. So cis males and cis females. Everybody familiar with that term? Uh, so many of us, uh, I, would, I would categorize myself as a cis male. A cis male would be, if I took my clothes off, which I promise I won't, you look at me and you'd probably say, he looks like a phenotypic male, and I identify as a male. That would make me a cis male. Remember chemistry, when you had the uh, translocations and the cis locations? if my body matches what my gender identity is, I'm a cis male, somebody else who's a female in this, I don't wanna presume, but somebody who looks like a female like uh, Antonio may say, I'm a cis female, okay? Uh, Trans means that your gender identity is different from what might be expected by your physical appearance or even your uh, uh, biological appearance. So again, these are terms that uh, there's a whole bunch of them, and it can just make us feel uncomfortable. Uh, The other thing you should be aware of is DSM 4 to 5 changes. Everybody aware that there's been a big change in the DSM that just came out? And this is for psychological diagnoses. DSM 4 had gender identity disorder as something that you could code. And that would suggest to most people this gender identity difference is a disorder. It's something pathological. And I think a lot of uh, individuals in the field, and also a lot of the trans folks that we deal with, felt that that was a misinterpretation, saying that, oh, this is really a psychological issue. So in, uh, DSM-5 that just came out last year is instead changed it to gender dysphoria. And you might say, big deal. But this is more than a subtle difference. What this is saying is that if I'm transgender, sure, I can get anxiety, depression. I can get a lot of negative feelings because I'm not very well accepted by society, and I have a lot of psychological symptoms that are related to my lack of ability to fit in in this society. And that's gender dysphoria. But a lot of people feel it it depathologizes transgender conditions. And I personally think that this is, for some individuals in our profession, this will make it easier for them to kind of take a step back and understand the transgender phenomenon as opposed to having the feeling that I think prevailed 15, 20 years ago, oh, these people are just kind of crazy, and, you know, this is different. No, I, I don't think it is at all. I think this is a medical condition, and I know I have some discussion with some of my trans friends that might push back and say, well, what do you mean it's a medical condition? I think gender identity disorder you can use for an ICD-9 four or nine code, because I think the disorder is, is that the individual, the way they look phenotypically and XY chromosomes, is different from their gender identity. We have no idea why it's different, but I think that's a disorder. I think it's infrequent enough that you could consider that in medicine a disorder. So I think from a medical diagnosis, um, you know, I'm willing to accept gender identity disorder, but not a psychological diagnosis. The other implications that have is that it's opened up the door then for insurance to be uh, much more open minded about covering, uh, you know, trans medicine, which it has. And those barriers are falling you know, tremendously. Uh, you know, Just starting this January, DHMC uh, has covered a lot of trans benefits for our trans employees uh, at the medical center. I know that Reese is already getting anxious, and so I'm going to run over, so I'm going to keep going. Uh, <laughs> so one of the things you should be aware of, too, that has a role in what we see in the office is that trans folk are transitioning much earlier in life than in the past, when I first saw patients 15, 20 years ago, uh, you know, they would come in at 35 or 40 and say, you know, I've had this feeling ever since I was four or five years old, but I realized my parents and society didn't want to hear it, and I really didn't know what it was, and it's caused a lot of problems. I've been depressed. I've become alcoholic, and, and finally, I'm starting to realize now that I have these trans feelings. There was no role models. There was very few. I mean, some of the old timers in the audience, I'm not looking at Chuck purposely, but Christine Jorgensen back in the early 1950s was one of the first people to transition in this country publicly. But there was very few role models, and many patients just suffered trying to search for their identity. That's changed totally. The internet now, it makes it very easy for individuals to be Uh, very aware of transgender, watch TV, read books, see movies, there's a lot of transgender characters and many of them are are, portrayed more and more positively, Uh, which which helps young kids to kind of uh, associate that feeling that something's wrong with what exactly it is. Uh, I just want to mention what I try to accomplish on the first visit, as I say, Uh, The first visit really is a tryout. I'm very aware of that patient's coming in and just wants to see, do I know anything about transgender? What is my attitude towards it? And they're very, uh, transgender and I'm sure HIV patients are the same, are very cognizant of what's going on in the office. And they notice things like this pin, okay? And they'll say, you know, afterwards, you know, I appreciate you wearing that. Now, you got to walk the walk. You can't just wear a pin and you can't just have a poster up. But I think it's a lot of work to educate your staff because you could be a very caring, open-minded person, but you're probably the your fourth or fifth person in that office that your patient inter- interacts with. So I think we need to try to make sure we have a trans-friendly environment that these patients deserve. Uh, so I'm just going to... What are we trying to accomplish? I'd like to make this profound, but it isn't. I think half of your patients in the HIV that you saw today have more estrogen than testosterone, and the other half it's the other way around. And from an endocrinological standpoint, what I'm trying to do is just change that balance. And, you know, it's relatively easy to do that. The medications that I use are you all use estrogen and testosterone, it's nothing mysterious about that. Uh, what I tend to do is start with a relatively low dose. If, if it's a trans-female, and if I say a trans-female, it means a you know, phenotypic male who's transitioning to become a female, trans-female. If it's a trans-male, it's the opposite. And you know, start to use the appropriate hormone, go up on the dose, try to negotiate with it. Not negotiate, but find out from the patient what he or she is expecting from starting these hormones. And then talk about the side effects, which fortunately, not surprisingly, are few and far between. Because after all, we're just giving pretty natural hormones, but just changing the, the ratio of one to the other.
3: Uh, Jack, do you do, that, uh, do you do that
2: without removing the uh, organs that are responsible for endogenous hormones? Yes. And for instance, in the, uh, in the trans-female... I'm going to be using enough estrogen to shut off the hypothalamic pituitary axis. And the the goal I'm looking for, and it may be different from what the patient's looking for, but one of the things I'm looking for is to that testosterone level come down into the female range. And so the estrogen levels that I'm using may be a little bit higher than we would use in a perimenopausal woman or somebody who just needs to have estrogen replacement. Uh, If you eventually go on to remove the organs, then you can lose... You can use less estrogen. I don't think that's Sorry, useful. that's me. I'm on a uh, halted monitor
3: for 24 hours, or so. Oh, okay.
2: <laughs> oh, you did a good job, though. You started looking at other people. You did. <laughs> like at <laughs> I didn't going to
3: say anything, but the
4: whole room
2: was looking. <laughs> okay. Uh, And again, what I do is talk to patients. It's very important to find out what the patient expects from the transitioning. Some of the things are, you know, a trans female, to say to this trans female, no, you're not going to get pregnant. You know, we can't give you right now anyways, uterus and a fallopian tube and so forth. But most of, you know, these patients now come in very educated, you know, because they've been going on the internet, and they have a pretty good idea of what they're looking for when they come in. Um, Dr.
4: Turkle, I imagine the other way around is also
2: true, is if it's a trans male, can they get pregnant? Or the hormones are... Yeah, that, that's, that's an interesting thing. There are some couples, you know, that were heterosexual couples, and then uh, the female, let's say, the biological female becomes trans male, they still want to have intercourse. So it's sometimes dicey, you know, negotiations that you're, you're trying to suppress testosterone but I still want to get an erection once in a while, so you have to use, I mean, so you've got to think out of the box. But pregnancy is, is an issue, and there are times now that people might want to stop taking the testosterone in order to conceive to have, to have a, a child. Uh, so there are all these different combinations, which again, I think, makes us as physicians kind of uncomfortable because we're not used to thinking that way. Those who watched the Patriots game this weekend, you know, they used a, they, they hit a running back in the line, and it blew, blew everybody's mind. And the referees, same thing. It's a bad analogy for you, you to much but you know, things that we're not used to make I think is makes us feel unsettled. How am I doing here? Not very good. Okay, so let me uh, just go on here. There is uh, the Endocrine Society guidelines came out in 2009, a cookbook of how to start testosterone, estrogens. Nice uh, guideline that tells you exactly what dose uh, to use. uh, What are the potential side effects? This is just, uh, you might be wondering, are there any long-term studies to say whether this is safe or not? And it turns out, for the Amsterdam study, they they followed many trans, females, trans, males. And the bottom line is, it looks like there really are very few side effects. There is an increase in, in suicidality. That's true prior to uh, treatment of the transgender population, and it continues afterwards. But I think there are some studies to show that the, uh, uh, the depression and the suicidality really does uh, get better. This is a study we did with about 60 patients. And um, look, at the suicidality prior to transitioning, 73%, 68% attempted to commit suicide prior. Pretty high, 30 and 16. And then resolution of suicidality, you know, was very high. Now this is, you know, in retrospect, their perception of that, but I think that was reassuring. And certainly my feeling is that these patients feel much happier in life and can move on and become quite successful. I'm going to stop here and turn it over to Reese. Great. Thanks, Jack. Jack, cancer issues moving on,
1: Jeremy?
2: Yeah, and then there is very, this anecdotal ovarian cancers, prostate cancer. I think most everybody that's looked at it feels that that's kind of anecdotal, you know, and it's not related to the actual uh,
3: hormones.
2: And trans men still need to be monitored for
5: cervical cancer.
2: Yeah, in other words, the guidelines are kind of uh, biologically specific. If you still have a uterus, you should be uh, followed the same way. If you are a female and you have a high incidence of uh, breast cancer, you should be followed the same way.
4: And anything with the polycythemia
2: with the higher oh, doses of the testosterone? Yeah, I watch for polycythemia in people on testosterone, and occasionally I have to adjust the dose. A lot of that, from what I understand, the, the uh, clotting abnormalities, is kind of from P-Vera individuals, and the question is how much is it applicable? But I am conscious of that, and I, you know, some of my patients who give a lot of blood donations and keep their, I try to keep the input on under 17.
6: So maybe at the end we can you answer some questions like that. Yeah, hopefully we'll have some more time. I mean, I'm, mine isn't very long either, and we'll we'll have some good discussion or dialogue afterwards. Uh, and the goal for my part of this presentation is to paint with somewhat of a broad brush the experiences that trans people have, and to connect some of those threads um, to the chances of them engaging in high risk behaviors that would lead to HIV transmission. And so. Um, A big part of this is to dispel or to chip away at some of our unconscious or subconscious assumptions that engaging in high-risk behaviors are a series of bad choices or that they're related to individual pathologies. And when we see that the rates, um, particularly for trans populations of HIV infection, are so high, it's important for us to step back and look at some of the cultural and structural variables that for my position, narrow life choices. And so if we have a population such as trans individuals with an incredibly high rate of homelessness, of underemployment, unemployment, below the poverty range, the chances of participating in self-soothing behaviors that are high risk, um, being incarcerated, um, that is correlated with sexual and physical abuse that leads to HIV transmission, and, and other variables as well. So, trying to step back and look at the broader context, um, I'll also say as part of this that I am a transgender man. Um, I've been a part of transgender communities for well over a decade. Started my hormonal uh, transition in 2006, and I'm still alive and well and here to present with you. Um, but looking, you know, beyond my individual experience, uh, there are some dire circumstances that trans people are in, um, and it's it's not it's not a great picture right now. So. With that, we have, some of you may recognize Laverne Cox. She's a very well-known actress, uh, advocate, um, and trans woman of color. And she was the cover story of Time Magazine this summer with the article of the transgender tipping point. And part of what Time Magazine was trying to ask of all of us is have we really reached a new era of trans experiences? Um, And there's a lot of information to show that we have. As Jack mentioned, we now have... um, just an explosion of visibility in the media that's not trans people as a sideshow or as a freak show, that they have more normalized characters, some of their storylines are actually quite boring, um, but they're there, they're more holistic individuals, um, that we see greater representations. We've also in the last handful of years seen um, an increase in anti-discrimination protections, policies and practices around some significant areas, um, in education, in healthcare. and in the workplace, so those things have been shifting. Uh, At the same time, in the last few years, there's now uh, so much more data that's being released that gives us a much clearer picture of what uh, discrimination looks like for trans people. So if we're talking about the relationship with trans experiences and HIV, um, there is some data. Some of this is a little bit older, but I'll just point to the bottom rung of it uh, that this comes from a study by Grant, Motet, and Janice. Also, the CDC has the same reports that transgender people are over four times the national average of HIV infection with rates much higher amongst transgender people of color. So this is absolutely um, a public health concern uh, and a social concern as well. The rates are much lower for uh, female to male trans people or trans men. Um, again, this data from 2007 is old. I would argue that there are many or much less reports that are being done on trans male experiences, and we're finding out that this number um, is higher, or we'll likely find out it's much higher. So I'm going to give you a little bit of an information dump, hopefully put it in context, and then we can come back to discussion. Um, In 2011, this report done by the National Center for Transgender Equality and the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force was released. It is the largest study within the United States. Um, Almost, I think, 6,500 trans people participated in the surveys or focus groups or interviews to create this data. Um, And it was looking specifically at discrimination that transgender people face. So this is some of the most comprehensive and in-depth information that we know about trans people's lives to date. 63% of trans people who participated in this survey experienced a serious act of discrimination. So, an event that would have a major or significant impact on their quality of life or ability to sustain themselves. This includes everything from loss of job, to incarceration, to denial of medical services, um, school bullying from peers and or from the teacher, um, an eviction, Uh, homelessness, and all of these experiences, as they reported, related to their gender identity or expression. It could have, of course, been related to other parts of their identity, but just to pull that out, that almost two-thirds of trans people have experienced a serious act of discrimination, uh, is startling. Of this number, uh, 23% experienced at least three of these life-disrupting events, so almost a quarter of trans people have experienced a catastrophic level of discrimination in their lives and those were, who are were alive and not incarcerated to be able to take the survey and participate in the research. Other information that is similarly relevant is that 41% of respondents reported attempting suicide compared to 1.6% of the general population. So this is, again, a startling number, and this is 41% of reported of those who are still currently living and who did not... Um, uh, did not die in their suicide. Um, it wasn't a, an attempt, but it was an actuality. So they're, they're really um, sad and devastating numbers, and I think you know Jack mentioned this, and I'll keep coming back back to this as well, is that this is an incredibly resilient population, that if you have people who are still um, asking for their needs to be met, who are still seeking out um, and advocating for themselves and advocating for others, given all these circumstances, it's, it's, pretty, um, it's pretty amazing. So I want to highlight, maybe I'll go back for a second, I want to highlight three key areas of discrimination that I think are helpful to look at. Employment, healthcare, and education. Um, there are a couple reasons why I want to highlight these. One is that it's, um, there's some research that's been done, some qualitative research, both in New York City, I think, Larry Nutbrock and Sel Huang, and then, um, I can't remember her name out in San Francisco, are showing that trans people are self-reporting that these are some of the structural variables that have informed their decisions to engage in high-risk behaviors. And a lot of those studies are on involvement with the underground economy. So um, sex work, um, selling drugs. Um, The other part is these are factors that have a great ripple effect on other areas of our lives in terms of sustainability and quality of life. So again, education, healthcare, and employment. The data from this study showed that Uh, The individuals who participated reported unemployment at twice the rate of the general population, with transgender people of color up to four times the national unemployment rate. Uh, 90% reported either experiencing harassment, or that they took actions to hide who they were to avoid it, which I think are two sides of this coin, is that people who aren't experiencing discrimination are also not living their authentic lives, or hiding that out of fear of, of losing their jobs, losing relationships, Uh, 47 reported being fired, not hired, or denied a promotion because of being transgender or gender non-conforming, and that trans people are more than four times likely to have household incomes under $10,000 a year. So we have high rates, um, and I don't go into this data here, but there are high rates of of homelessness, and we see underemployment or unemployment. We move to employment then. Um, There are the discrimination outcomes Uh, Of the many of them that are absolutely anticipated and expected from being under or unemployed, um, there are also additional ones of double the HIV infection rate. So people who have experienced employment discrimination, there's a correlation um, or that within that population have double the HIV infection rate than the general population of trans people um, interviewed and and studied. Other things increase suicide attempts, more incarceration, um, underground economy, and so on. This is a theme. These outcomes are a theme. Um, education discrimination outcomes. If we're just looking at K through 12, which I think is important because, uh, you know, if there is discrimination there, people are probably not making it to higher education. Uh, 70% of trans and gender non-conforming people, if they expressed that while in K through 12, 70% uh, reported harassment, uh, 35% physical assault, 12% sexual violence, and 6% were expelled. Um, and again, some of the correlations with that experience of mistreatment or discrimination are lower income levels, drug and alcohol use, homelessness, incarceration, uh, and HIV, uh, being HIV positive, and suicidality. It's hard to, to teach this all the time, by the way, because it's, <laughs> it's not always the most optimistic picture of life. Um, then turning to health discrimination outcomes. reported being outright refused medical care. Um, I didn't parse out the other layers of discrimination because I thought that was a significant number on itself, 50% reported having to teach their medical providers about transgender care. Um, and as it relates to HIV transmission, this, is, this was startling when I read it too, is that one in three trans people and 48% of transgender men have delayed or avoided preventative health care, including pelvic exams, STI screening, um, out of fear of discrimination or disrespect. Um, and then half of transgender men in a separate study where it was focusing just on trans men um, did not receive annual pelvic examinations. And so we could draw some of the connections between real or perceived threats of discrimination and their inability or avoidance to access health care. Um, and where it's, I think it's helpful to think about is that if someone, if this is the experience of a large number of trans people coming into your office, um, you're probably not the first person that they've seen about this issue. As Jack mentioned, they probably shopped around um, and that, you know, they... This is a place where people really need to have um, supportive and affirming health care. So stepping back before moving into some Q&A and discussion is I really just focused on that top layer, the structural barriers of um, trans people's experiences that have led to decreased access to resources, so decreased access to employment, uh, to health care, to education, But other factors also lead to high-risk behaviors. As Jack mentioned, the stigma, um, both what they experience externally as well as internalized transphobia that's very alive and well in many trans people. Um, There are also myths and misconceptions that live within trans communities about how HIV is transmitted. Some people believe that once you get a newly constructed vagina that that's impervious to STI transmission, which is just not the case at all. Um, But there is I still think with some people um, living within those misconceptions. Um, and then marginalization with both, both research and outreach, that if we're not specifically looking at trans people, um, then we're missing a lot of their experience and their needs. Um, and I think part of um, what may be helpful to recognize is that There are groups of trans people that have little to no connections to gay communities or MSM communities. And so the outreach that we think falls in this larger LGBT umbrella, if we're not specifically looking at the T, we're actually not reaching large segments of the trans population. You might have someone who um, didn't recognize that they were transgender until that they were in their 30s and they're married and heterosexual and have spent no time within gay communities and if they lose their job, if they lose their marriage and are now engaged in maybe a sugar daddy relationship or they're escorting or something um, of that nature, they're not gonna be connected to the outreach and the research efforts that are happening within these expansive gay communities. So that's, uh, just wanna keep that in mind. So I'll leave you off, and, and Jack put up some stuff uh, about this as well, is, is how do we then develop an affirming relationship with trans people? And my goal for sharing this information um, with you is to develop a sense of uh, a greater sense of compassion for where trans people are coming from when they come into your office. Um, and that they uh, and we have experienced um, some pretty substantial hardships, but are a very, very resilient group of folks. Um, And this shows in the study as well that although the survey identified major structural barriers, 76% of the trans respondents were still able to receive hormone therapy, um, indicating a determination to endure the abuse or search out sensitive medical providers. Uh, Jack mentioned this as well, mirroring language, mirroring the pronouns people use, mirroring the name that they um, use to self-identify, what identity labels they use, Someone could use trans we could have 20 people that identify as transgender and everyone has a different definition of what that means for them. And so being able to listen, mirror that back. Um, Another thing that I think isn't talked about that much is to mirror the language that trans people use when they talk about their body parts. Um, Some trans men do not refer to them as breasts, it's their chest. Um, What you might identify and the you know skin flap on the front of someone's body as a penis might be someone else's clitoris. Um, And you, in effect, are translators in developing a shared language with that person of, okay, this is how you make sense of and see and affirm your own body. Even though this is what I know, let's just get on the same page and then move along from there so that you're able to affirm um, how someone makes sense of and operates within their own body. Because if not, there might be things that you are missing as well. If they're using a language that you're not correlating with the information that you have and what you know. Other things, implementing and using a preferred name system or a two-step sex and gender classification system. So asking people on records what their sex assigned at birth was, male-female, intersex condition, explain, and then another question around what is someone's gender, and if possible leaving that an open blank. Um, Providing trans-specific resources. um, As Jack mentioned with the visible markers in the office of having some sort of Pin flag whatever it is, but having something to back it up, and then continuing to learn more and offer offer that, some of that education to your staff. There are a lot of webinars through national LGBT um, health communities uh, that that give additional background from what we're adding. So, and it was a big information dump, but I thought I would just put it out there and then leave some room for filtering or give you some time later that you can let it marinate and and follow up need be via email. So that's what I have, we could have some more time for discussion.
2: Thank you. I wanted to follow up two things. One is, when Brian asked me to do this, talk, or Richard actually, I was kind of thinking, are there any decisions that I have to make differently when I see somebody that's HIV positive and transgender? And I also couldn't think of it. You know, uh, sure. Uh, estrogen can increase your risk of uh, DVTs, and you tell me maybe in some of the treatments you use could theoretically increase that. So this would on top of it. But I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of HIV-positive women who go on birth control pills. So I mean, there's not not that much difference there. The other question about malignancies. Uh, you know, one thing I should say about the Dutch group is that most individuals over there, most uh, trans men, uh, do have hysterectomies. So that obviously is going to decrease the chances of long-term complications from that. And, and that highlights the fact that we really don't have great danger in our country on long-term uh, you know, trans follow-up. has isn't been a lot of research. Um, thanks for coming, though.
1: this has been really good. Uh, Can you talk a little, you mentioned the age at transition or dialogue or engagement it's moving around to 20 years.
2: Can you give us a feel for how much interest is occurring in children and youth versus adults kind of things? Maybe comment a bit on that. Well, you know, and it's, I mean, to some up socioeconomic, you know, mm-hmm. there is a, a children's hospital in Boston <coughs> and they're seeing individuals who are 10 You 2. Know, m- many of these kids will have trans feelings when they're 4, 5, 6, 7. The literature, which I don't think is great literature, but pretty good literature would say most of those individuals are not going to be transgender. You know, they're going to you know, use a dress and make believe they're a girl or a boy or whatever. But if by the time they're starting to go into puberty, they're still very have strong trans feelings, the chances of them being transgender when they get older are very high. Those individuals now are getting uh, uh, GnRH to suppress puberty and the endocrine guidelines would be at age 16. After getting some counseling and so forth, if they're still interested in transitioning, um, to then start on the hormone of their choice. Because one thing that I will tell you is that for the patients I would see 30s and 40s transitioning for the first time, one part of their life that was not a, a happy time was puberty. Because I could probably ask that question here, puberty. <laughs> but particularly for the trans, because that's when their body just kind of betrayed them. And so I think. I personally think, I'm curious what Reese thinks, that you know, individuals that are transitioning very early on in life are gonna get into life, lack of a better word, with a lot less baggage, yep. and they're gonna do better. But we'll have to wait and see, and hopefully mm-hmm. we'll have enough data to be able to show that.
6: Yeah, and as you mentioned, too, that it, it, if you're able to pause puberty and then engage in a puberty that affirms someone's identity, then you don't have to go through a second puberty later in life, right? I mean, it's hard enough as it is going through the first one, but if you're going through it when you're in your, you know, late teens, mid-twenties, and thirties, and no one else within your age group is going through a puberty at that time, it's incredibly challenging and it's very isolating. Um, But I would say, you know, another reason why we're seeing it at a younger and younger age is just that people know what transgender is now. That what would have been understood I think by a lot of people as being gay or being lesbian and still having or just being a masculine woman or a feminine man people are now being able to put a name to it and seeking out resources and support but only really able to do that if they are more closely um, in proximation to centers uh, that allow them to do that that have the medical providers that they have the care. I mean, if families have insurance or not makes that's a make or break it, and whether or not insurance covers it. So, And
2: yeah. support of parents is a huge issue. You know. Yeah. Uh, P Flag and other organizations have you know really been able to also educate parents, and it's, it's really amazing to me some some of these parents that will come in that will say, look, I don't really understand this, but I love my kid, and mm-hmm. you know I want to support them, and uh, those are the people that, in my experience, do the do the best, they have some support. Others are kicked out of the house at age 15 yep. or 16, get thrown out of school, and then they're on their own. And mm-hmm. I think that's when things can go south as far as yep. behavior and a lot of other things. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I just want to mention a couple of things. One, <clears throat> I've been really uh, encouraged over the
3: last few years. Uh, I sit on several advisory uh, boards of NIH and within uh, Allergy Infectious Disease Institute, there every single step for research going forward is a recognition that ch- transgenders need to be included uh, just as gays, lesbians, and, and, and other, other groups. So uh, it's, it's gradually being translated to research, but it, it certainly is a large area that needs further investigation. I, I wanted to ask you a question. When we talk about the, the risk of HIV mm-hmm. in, in these individuals, Uh, Is it thought primarily that it's the lifestyle of uh, sex workers or violent sex? Is there any understanding of the underlying um, cause for that 24%, percent number you talked about?
6: Yeah, you know, I didn't look for, I didn't disaggregate amongst sort of how people um, reflected about how they might um, have seroconverted or what led to that, so I don't know. Um, and I don't want my stereotypes to, to think that it has much more to do to participation in the underground economy. Um, I do think that there are some indicators, though, that um, the correlations between working in the underground economy um, and being HIV positive or like, there are very high degrees of, of correlation there, but there are there are other factors. I mean, I think um, there are high rates of trans people being in abusive relationships, um, you know, of being incarcerated, um, that yeah, I sexual assault, yeah. Uh, I, I don't know the reality, yeah, the, the incidence of it, but uh, we've certainly been talking about that as a as a factor, yeah, how major it is, that? yeah. And I, you know, I'd have to pull back up um, some of those reports to look at it, but there. are it is a big factor um, in the lives of trans people in general. And part of that is if you're looking at people who are, if you're either looking at intimate relationships or um, sexual assault from someone that you're not in an intimate relationship with it, trans people are often dependent on people around them to not out them because they might lose their jobs. Um, there are a lot of factors that lead to a heightened amount of vulnerability within a trans person's life that I think um, lends themselves um, to predatory behaviors of others or not being able to leave um, dangerous intimate relationships, domestic relationships, so, yeah. Jack, I was
3: just going to mention one thing. I don't think the answer is in um, the role of hormones uh, in transgenders or even uh, straight or, or gay. Uh, There was a report that came out just four days ago. uh, Lancet uh, infectious disease, uh, Nancy uh, Padian, looked at, uh, I think, 15 different uh, uh, studies. And it's circumstantial evidence that uh, some contraceptives, Depot provera specifically, is a separate, distinct risk factor for increased uh, exposure to. for increased likelihood of HIV acquisition. Mm. Another, uh, another androgen uh, that, that we're looking at doesn't seem to have that effect. Uh, so, uh, and, and the first trial uh, of its kind is being initiated within about three months coming out of South Africa to compare these three, prode- three progestational compounds. So, uh, and, and our evidence certainly would indicate that estrogen Gestrone do play a role in terms of risk factors, so I think that it's something that we need to keep our minds open to. That, yeah. the, that the doses, even though you try to normalize, <laughs> even if they're perfectly normalized, they, they, they probably are going to be contributing factors, which means better prevention. Yeah. Yeah. I
5: get, I think about with the risk any time trans people do have to participate in an underground economy and life I mean you're talking about these kids that get kicked out of their house at 15 you're in New York City you're in Boston you don't have any way to live Um, and with the hormones also how many people are sharing needles if they if they're not able to go to clinics and get their injections or get prescribed injections anytime we force people to access whatever services education medical care uh, employment, they're gonna be at higher risk for all sorts of things. If you even just look at rates of sexual assault, and people who are commercial sex workers or are trading for sex, straight and gay, have huge rates of sexual assault. Yeah. So um, yeah. I think anytime people are forced into to non-traditional economies of all sorts, they're at risk.
2: Yeah. There are some <laughs> tough situations. We, we went uh, down to the New Hampshire Correctional System because they're trying hard to figure out, what do we do that's right here? But right now, if you're a trans female and you're incarcerated, you're going to probably end up in a male cell. Well, chances are what's going to happen there is you're going to get raped. Yeah. And, you know, so, and that's a hard one. You know, what do you do? When they, you know, there is one trans prison apparently in the state of Washington where if it, if you could theoretically send somebody out there I'm not sure that's the best thing for the for the incarcerated. You so that, those are tough you know. issues. You can send someone from here to Washington. That, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, If you want,
6: transgender. yeah. transgender arrangement in the prison. Yeah, or that some individuals have been put in basically what's equivalent to solitary confinement yeah. um, because they're being seen as to be needed to be removed from the general population, but again to the detriment of their. Uh, welfare from being in solitary for extended periods of time.
1: Yeah, I was just sort of reflecting on the discussions I have with my patients, and, and they tend not to include a lot of discussion about um, gender identity. You know, I take what people bring to me. Yeah. And I was wondering how much in that, how frequent in that room is there sort of positive trans desire that's um, never been acted on and, and whether there's value to actually exploring a little more um that with patients who are caring for in yeah. that's you know as ever coming out of the closet in a sense um, and potentially exploring the possibility, of transitioning um, you know in addition to being psychologically I mean, beneficial could be medically be beneficial. So do we, do we have get a sense of sort of how much
2: well, I was going to say, under that umbrella, there's a very small group that I see individuals that really want to change, you know, take the hormone, but the whole rest of the gender queer I think Betsy brought that up, that, you know, you have explored that with some of your patients, you were saying, and I think, quite frankly, if we did it with all of our patients, whether they came in for an upper respiratory infection or HIV, you know, I just don't think gender identity is as binary as we think it is, you know, and we would find out some interesting things, but we don't tend to get into that conversation. I'm not sure it's going to change your treatment. You yeah. might understand your patient better, or you may leave more confused, but I'm not <laughs> sure it's going to change what you do medically. I don't yeah. know. Well,
5: I guess it may stratify risk
4: at that point mm-hmm. to know yeah. how they identify themselves, but with whom they like to be with. Yeah. Yep. Um, because that's uh, certainly a lot of what we do is all about, with yeah, yeah,
1: counseling and stuff like
2: that. And it might be easier for people to be honest with you yes. if you acknowledge the fact yep. that yeah, uh, you know, here's my gender identity. It's a little less conventional than you might think, but it puts me in situations where this is the type of sex that I have.
5: Yeah, and you're right about being yeah. confused
4: because I have two that are partners, both transgender.
2: Yeah,
4: and I have to re ask every time. Yeah. Do you, do you still have a vagina, and right. do you have intercourse into the vagina? Because I need to know whether I need to get packs on them and other yeah. stuff that I, or where do I screen for chlamydia and gonorrhea? It just yeah. becomes a little more complicated. Yeah, at
2: 4 o'clock on Friday, sometimes you say, okay, wait a minute, let me just do You have a few you know. Because you know, yeah. it gives a kid really, thinking off the top of your head, there's been some very fun, funny moments my, my patients don't, let me forget it either. I used to having periods, or how's your prostate? Doctor, I remember who I am, so... Does, uh, does Dartmouth Medical School have an uh, educational component in it uh, for, uh, for teaching our students about transgenders? We have, I think we have numerous anecdotal ones, and Tim runs a course where we have one session, and yeah, there are... Probably in the course of four years, I think most typical medical students will have three or four sessions. I don't think it's you know it's not as formally part of the of the uh, curriculum, but they do get exposed certainly a lot more than when we were in med school. The,
4: the other way to say that, Jack's being modest, is you're you're looking at the educational program. <laughs>
5: you know, one of the things about incorporating more. Um, formal education and opportunities to ask questions is that piece that you brought up that per, um, patients feel like they have to educate their providers. Yeah. I think it's all great that they do that, but they, that shouldn't be their responsibility. The same way we hear that from people with HIV too, like yeah. I had to teach. I, so I think the, the idea of really being able to to ask questions that, in small groups where maybe you aren't even comfortable. Like There's some questions that come up that you feel like stupid asking, or, like, I know I shouldn't ask this, but, but if we get the opportunity to ask those questions, yeah. then maybe our patients won't have to educate. You know, We could we have some paid, paid student educators yeah. I, yeah. to ask the questions so that we are educated. Enough. I
2: think the older generation, 20 years ago, were willing to do it because they realized that was their only access to get treatment. I think now I get pushed back yeah. more they get frustrated and angry. Listen, we've given you guys and women a chance for 20 years to learn about uh, us as a population. It's about time you get it. And so, more and more of them, I think, are upset and angry that we don't know more. Mm-hmm. So, as a population, do you have your own
3: support groups or organizations the way kids are being
6: served? Yeah, so there's interesting research on this. and, and uh, A lot of it has found that that trans people will access support groups up and through parts of their transition, but once they've reached a point where they feel like they're living and embodying uh, their self-identified gender, that they usually then move away from that. And that part of them don't necessarily sustain having a transgender identity post-transition or later on. And so that, I think, creates a really difficult problem is that you don't have... The mentoring for better or worse, that you might have in populations where it's a persistent identification as gay or lesbian versus some people seeing transgender um, experience as an experience and not as a sustained identity. Uh, but there's so much more available online now that people aren't meeting in person in groups but are pulling information from, um, you know, visible uh, websites and visible resources that are electronic. I wonder if you could
4: talk a little bit about um, popular portrayals of transgender people. I was just really struck by, you know, the truth of what you said that, that just the way we talk about it has changed in the last five, ten years. Yeah, you know, John Irving's one of his latest novels is kind of unpushily about that. It centers around. Uh, uh, People in the trans community, without sort of seeming like it's pushing an agenda, it's just sort of stories. It's personification. Yeah. yeah. You know, the Golden Globes was a nice night last yeah. night for yeah. trans stories. Yeah. Cover of Time, all this stuff. And I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm just thinking about how, how you're seeing that play out in the trans community, and, and I'm wondering if you're, yeah, is that, is that sort of on the periphery of all of this, crappy stuff in the middle that our society still gives people or is that starting to make people feel like they're a
6: little less pariahs i think it's twofold i mean i absolutely think just as and this is we could go back historically that when the transsexual (laughs) phenomenon was released there was a sense of relief that trans people felt of there is me here and now I understand what my experience is. It's this, it's that I'm transgender, it's not that I'm something else. So fast forward, you know, many decades later, a lot of people are feeling affirmed that they're seeing visions of themselves in there. At the same time, there's a really open and I think um, positive criticism that really the stories are for non-trans people. You know, that they're not you know, in and of trans communities, that they are often played by cisgender actors and actresses, uh, um, Felicity Huffman, uh, Jeffrey Tambor, um, that they are, also that the stories are palatable for people who are just learning. And so there's still a sense in which this is not a reflection of us, but a representation of our experiences. So you, you take the good with the bad. Yeah, it's a process. Um, you know, and always on our end it's going to feel like, why didn't we do this 30 years ago? But that's, I what, think, you know. One you know, what,
2: what thing that struck me is this is an opportunity because yeah. I was approached about a week ago by a Dartmouth professor, Peter Travis, who's been teaching a course every few years <clears throat> called the Masculine Mystique. And looking at all the negative stereotypes we have that plays out on our campus all the time about what it is to be a guy. And whether it's drinking, sexual assault, all of this stuff. And I think, if you know, learning about well, what if, if this is a spectrum, you know, I mean, you can find different places along that yep. spectrum, and you don't have to be way out here to be a real guy, even a Dartmouth. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, just a, a better discussion about all of that, you know, yeah. could make this a lot more caring, empathetic community. Yeah.
6: Know. It opens up the door to talk about it. You know that you can say it's about this character rather than people feeling like they have to expose their own individual experiences in their lives. And you can talk about something else that's once removed. So there are definitely some good aspects, and and people know and feel that, and it resonates, you know, with them in positive ways.
1: Could you just follow up on Jack, could you
6: comment for us on what the atmosphere is like on the college campus now? <laughs> Um, it's really interesting. We have some of the most progressive policies compared to other institutions in terms of healthcare coverage, um, that we have um, some gender inclusive facilities, um, that we have uh, adopted the NCAA transgender student athlete inclusion policy. Like, we have a lot of things structurally that fit, um, but this is still. Uh, an institution where I think the number one major is economics and people are going from conservative households to wanting to be on Wall Street and so it's a sense of um, the campus climate is still uh, relatively regressive compared to the policies that have been enacted by administration and staff and some faculty so I think that that is a mixed bag for some trans students when I was it last year we had an income. Our first incoming out transgender students—not so someone who transitioned while they were here, but were already out. Had already started transitioning before they came, and so we are seeing some shifts in the demographics of the population, but they're small. Yeah, there's, there's a new housing. Mm-hmm. Is there a
0: housing?
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. But you know, people often ask me how common this is. At least, you know, people will say one in a hundred thousand, one in fifty thousand. I, I would say. The only way I have to give you an idea about that is that when I look at how many trans students I'm aware of at any one time over the last five or six years, every year, it would be five, six, you know, out of 6,000 students. So, you know, to me that says it's like one in a thousand, which is a hell of a lot more common than what people say. And and that's an underestimate because, you know, every three or four months another student comes in who's been, you know, that I just wasn't aware of are probably more aware of that, you know, in your yeah. organization inter, inter, interacting. So I, it's, it's common in our medical center, you know, it's been great. They just changed to cover for trans medicine. And it's because we have a core of transgendered employees here that, you know, started to write letters and started to say, hey, come on. What about us? Yeah. And it made a difference. And they did it in somewhat of a quiet, respectful way. And it, and it was able to pay off dividends. Yeah. So that's progress. You know, so I can see the progress, but, you know, as Reese says, there's still a lot of bad things that happen if you look at society as a whole. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you all so much.